Hi, everybody, and welcome to episode 85 of the No Country Podcast. My name is J. David Osborne, and that is Chris Sacknessum. Chris, how are you doing this Monday evening? David, I'm I'm doing better. I started off a little grumpy, uh, but now I'm really grateful. When uh, we spoke earlier today, I was... Uh, sweating and cursing, trying to pack up 24 pieces of very different sized art, very different media, uh, including some very different fabric sort of works and canvases and all this stuff. And this is all a speculative proposition for my first uh, exhibition for the Center of Contemporary Art in Seattle coming up in July. It's not the big show coming up next year, which I will have professional help on. So I was doing all this on my own and coming out of, or recovering still from the uh, the moving into the new house. Uh, the last thing I wanted to see was packing tape, bubble wrap, and boxes. <laughs> but shortly, our, well, there, and once I got that finally shipped off, and it was, you know, just felt like an enormous, pathetic achievement to get it to the UPS people. Uh, I got a lovely email from uh, a hospice here in Las Vegas. They are the possessors of the first work in this series. Frankly, this, these, these works all have one thing in common they're extremely vivid color pieces, abstracts designed to lift the mood. Uh, they are unashamedly feel-good pieces I created in, uh, you know, the, the neighborhood I left that was degenerating, you know, because of crime and violence and, and drug weirdos. Mm-hmm. So I, I created some pieces that are about restructuring the mind in that sort of musical Brian Eno, Harold Budd, Liz Story sense, and those are in fact uh, the names of some of the of the pieces, but the painting that kicked it off is a big work which got picked up by uh, this hospice, which is about the most delicate sort of crossroads uh, environment I can imagine, you know. And I was, I think, you know, we always say that you know things connect and the universe is kind of magically in tune. And the uh, the head of community relations there sent me an email. Uh, earlier this afternoon saying how appreciated the work is and how much feedback from uh, patients, families, and staff, you know. And, of course, the staff linger on, hopefully. They're trying to retain people in a very difficult job environment. The patients, by definition, uh, exit. Uh, But one of the comments was from someone who is gone now, uh, I was very grateful this was one of the last things I saw, which I found very, very moving. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's lovely. You So you spent time packing. I spent a little bit of time in the post office, had to ship off my tax return for the second year in a row. For whatever reason, the IRS has um, not been able to accurately list my prior year income. So when I try to, when I get everything all done through TurboTax and I'm done being raped, they then tell me oh by the way you have to send this in via via paper so i did that and when i was in the post office there was a guy who was in there who had this fantastic voice an employee i think that he should do voiceover work which i found out today voiceover actors can make 75 dollars an hour 
to be on anime and cartoons and things of that nature. But I thought it was funny because there were a few women ahead of me. One of them looked pretty good. The other one was just, you know, just a regular human being. But he was, you know, talking, chatting with them. Oh, where are you going on vacation? Uh, oh, how many stamps do you need? Oh, don't need that many stamps, you know flirtatious but not overly so and then I came up with my envelopes to mail off to the IRS and I got a very simple what's up bro <laughs> I thought, I thought that, that's, that's great man yeah <laughs> and it's like I get it you know what I mean like I get it it's uh I, I, th- I was I neither wanted nor expected uh, the same chatty treatment that the women before me got, but I thought sometimes you just see <clears throat> just a real honest depiction of a guy being a guy, and I appreciated that. It gave me a good chuckle. So my downtown, the new downtown of the where I live now is beautiful. This whole town is just beautiful, and you know, you have mentioned um, the, some of the strangeness of small town life and how an employee might work at a certain place because of family connections and nobody really likes them but they are allowed to keep their job anyhow i experienced that so much in the past mm, four or five years actually all the way back to portland so it's been about seven or eight years so of course when you live in portland everybody's tattooed and has their hair dyed and they don't give a shit about you one way or the other. When you go to a bar to order a beer, those bartenders are making 15 bucks an hour plus tip. And it's one of those situations where you ask for a beer and they look at you like you've just, you know, shit, taken a shit right on the, you know, the bar, right? How, how dare you? A very unhospitable atmosphere in Portland. Uh, and then El Paso, it's a cultural difference with white people, white Americans, uh, where it's a very unhurried atmosphere. So usually customer service is in no rush to acknowledge that you're even at the counter. Uh, Not out of any kind of malice, not like Portland, but just simply because we'll, we'll get to you when we finish talking. And then Norman is Oklahoma's little version of Portland. So the same kind of just grumpy, nasty people. And it was funny because my wife and I went to go get coffee on Sunday, this Easter Sunday, and the barista at the window was being extremely friendly. Big smiles. I got you some straws. And I, I said, oh, uh, okay, thank you. And I was the one who was being weird about it. And my wife said, uh, she's being nice to you. You should be nice back to her. And I said, oh, you know what? You're, I'm, I'm sorry. I'm just genuinely not used to somebody smiling and asking me if I need anything else. <laughs> You know, so I had to, I have to get back into that mode because that's the name of the game here. That's, it's sort of, in a sense, back to normal, how it's been my entire life, how I was when I worked in customer service, but people here are very uh, kind and very attentive and they smile and it puts you off. I felt like I was a, almost like a New Yorker or something. Like, what is this person smiling at me for? Do they want something from me? So that's been a that's been a shift. Well, that's a good shift, you know, and you'll get you'll get into shift. that groove. I, I find that Boulder City for me is is just uh, 
I have to go the other way and prepare for when things aren't really super friendly and when people just don't embrace my chattiness because I'm sort of a natural mastiff, you know, I'm like, Oh, don't you want to pat me? You know, <laughs> you know, it's like that. I am like my, uh, the old mastiff, you know, it's like, Whoa, you know, you're not, you, can't, you know, you're scared. You know, it's like, no, I'm just, I'm just goofy. You know, I'm just a galumpy dog here. And, uh, right. I, I find that, that I have found, uh, that environment, which is about, as far removed from what you describe Portland to be as possible. And which is sadly why I, I just, I don't know what it would take to get me to go back to Portland, even though we both know many people there that we admire. Uh, I, I just, I, I find that kind of, um, and I think it's interesting the counterpoint you make with New York. Uh, because, of course, New York has gone through many changes. It's back to being its old, weird ways from what I, and maybe even worse. But I think, you know, post two, you know, 9-11, it got, it, got, it got weirdly friendly. But it's New York, you know, and Portland is not New York, you know. And, and all of this sort of uh, supercilious sort of bratty, it's, I, I, I think it's just bratty nonsense a lot of the times. It's not just, it's not being tough or cool or, you know, it's it's just really, it's nonsense. And I, I really dig the fact that uh, where I live, you know, you do have people who are pierced like a barn roof, you know, and weird people. And you've got all sorts of very conservative religious, you've got everybody kind of working together. And the code, though, is and I think it's a very legitimate social code that I think is sincerely followed. Is uh, look people in the eye, and mm-hmm. uh, be gracious, and think of opening a door for someone, uh, and maybe don't be in your own head so that you look like your head's up your ass. You know, yeah, that's not yeah. a bad social yeah, code. Good... You know, no, I don't think so at all. So you have given me my five words. To choose two. My words from last time were, I believe, squishy. Mm-hmm. And is it fermented? Yes. I don't think yeah, yeah, you yeah, nailed fermented. both those. Fermented. They're kind of interrelated. Yeah. I encourage people to follow up uh, words like squishy uh, and squirm. Uh, you never take anything for granted. That's one of the key mottos of my textbook. Don't let words just slip you by. There's a world of history and mystery in every single word. Squishy. I think that anything that has QU in it is... And why QU? You know, think about that. How many people can really answer that question? You know? Yeah, what's the deal with QU? I was wondering that the other day while I was playing my New York Times Wordle on my phone. Yeah, well, we're going to leave that open to... Well, that's a very good discipline. But I think people need to check that out for themselves because... Sometimes we learn in proportion to the effort we must extend and expend ourselves, not the simplicity and quickness of a response from a teacher or Google or whatever. But yeah, YQU. And while we're on that, people could look at also the three most common silent letters in the English language. That's also a good little mm. exercise. But okay. can I guess? I want to guess. I want to guess. Uh-huh. Silent letters. 
H. Yeah, that's one. Uh, I'm not going to say, but you know, again, hold on. Hold, I'm thinking. I'm thinking. Uh, z. Oh, <laughs> uh, see, now you're hooked, aren't you? Now you re- see. This is the thing. This is what. This is what education, curiosity, learning, communal sharing of learning, and that's what learning really is. Is all about. You get people thinking. Well, damn it! What what are they? What what are the three most common silent Wait. letters? So we'll come. <laughs> now I'm going to leave you hanging, and our listeners hanging. We'll get back to that for a special go round. What about for the next time? People need to do a little bit of, of research, and don't just Wikipedia or Google, or just think yeah. think about it a little bit. You know, I'm one thing David is is at least wrestling with this, going, look, you know, I've, I've read a lot of words. I'm a language guy. I'm a writer. <laughs> I'm a professional editor and publisher. I should know this stuff. What, you know, what are they? So that's a good place to start off with. But now... K. K is, K is one. No. K is one. I'll figure it out. I'm sorry. I don't mean to keep it. No, no, no. Okay. What, let's be clear, though. That, that you, all of those, those uh, examples are very good. And, and certainly there are many, many examples that you could use to support those arguments but the question was what are the three most statistically common so mass we're talking big data here across w the entire english language (laughs) you're hooked aren't you you're yeah i am you're going to be thinking about this when you're trying to go to sleep tonight it's it's got to be w w has to be up there w definitely has to be up there i ain't saying nothing till next week because we we got to get All some right. other people hooked on it this is what we're doing we're we're building communities of learning by getting puzzled irritated fascinated fixated at the same time on certain issues that are right in front of us all the time they're in our mouths they're in our heads you know you're raising an infant there's nothing more significant than what goes in your mouth or comes out of your mouth you know that's something important for everyone to think about choking hazards taste and sound words meaning you know so we'll leave that sit for a moment because i'm Dying to get to your imaginative challenge. All right, let's do it. Okay, so we this this is a real uh, David has done so well with these. I I, I just I, I marvel at them. His uh, his corporate uh, spiel of complete nonsense was one of the most hilarious uh, things I've I've ever heard live. It was so on point. I asked him to create a mission statement that was complete blither and blather and dribble and pap and fluff, but nonetheless sounded kind of had a contemporary uh, sophistication that some uh, millennial and Gen X people might have fallen for. He did a beautiful job. This time, though, we are going back to the terrain of storytelling in a very proper sense. As we all know today, there is a great socio-political debate about the rights of parents, the responsibilities of parents, what we're doing with young children. David and I have talked about the problem of lack of initiation rights. This fits into our larger anthropological frame. We have some major discussions on now 
about how children, kindergarten through third grade, that's five to eight years old for people who are out of that loop a little bit, five, four to eight years old, young kids, right? There's a lot of discussion about that. Well, there are some things that we can control that happen to kids, and there are some things that we can't. So we are going to an imaginary town, a small town, not as nice as the small town that I live in. Blakeville, Ohio has been left behind. It is a classic American small town. It still has a bandstand in the park, but it is uh, an aging former industrial town that is not in the prosperous, fun, happy, creative state that my town of Boulder City is. But it is a small town. It's a defined area. And one morning, all of the children, ages four to nine, wake up covered in strange tattoos. And David's challenge is to craft a story that tells us what those tattoos depict. He's got a, an open range of visual possibilities from very explicit figurative pieces that we could all understand to strange alien hieroglyphs. So visually, he's got some room to move. Certainly some room to move in why and how. How did this come about? And I'm thinking that we would have a, a, a kind of a gloss of a flash fiction piece coming out. You know, maybe 200 words of a good story outline, you know, that tells us a little mm -hmm. bit about the strange tattoo epidemic of children in Blakeville, Ohio. Any questions? Oh, goodness. No, that's great. That is, that's good. I'll have to think about that one. What would you like to talk about okay. today? Well, I, I think, I'm hoping this is, um, you know, a, a kind of ongoing evolution trajectory uh, of an organic kind based on, you know, the discussions we've been having of light. We're, we're searching for the bridge between cultural dissonance and coherence. We're trying to, in the last uh, few segments, looking at more positively at some of the, the great uh, problems of, of social dissonance, which we you know we were all bombarded with uh, however much exposure we have to official media or social media. We're looking for some positive connections. And I had two thoughts. They connect with a bigger idea about, about mythology and mythography and our notion of uh, the need for a reinstatement of magical values, which embrace many things, including religion and science, in our views. I had two thoughts. One was I was speaking to someone I greatly admire who is not much younger than you are. So if you define yourself as a millennial, I, I suppose she would too. Not Gen Z and not Gen X. And it emerged out of the conversation and there was no sort of really huge contextual, you know, deep thinking background for it. But I remarked on how many heroes 
I have across every category of culture and life that you can think of, from very, very famous people, uh, living people, dead people, to people that you've never heard of who are just simply people that I've met in life. And I, that deep sense of, of hero-ness, and, and it, it, it helps me with uh, you know, spiritual loneliness. I, I see it as a great support. I can't imagine my life without that pantheon and you and I have talked about a pantheon of, of intellectual and artistic heroes that we share. Well, this young woman responded instantly and with vehemence and also a kind of perverse pride that she had no heroes. And that really, really hit me hard. And I thought to myself, I cannot imagine anyone pulling out of the thin air uh, a more divergent worldview to mine than that. And I wouldn't have necessarily thought that before I heard it. So it really, really hit hard. Almost uh, within a few hours, I was, I was speaking to another friend who is older than I am, who made the case that the problems we face, particularly with millennials and Gen Z and younger, is a leadership deficit, as in our political leaders. And I thought about that for a moment. I thought, well, yeah, I, I, can't, I can't disagree that we've got a deficit of leadership. But then I thought back to my own growing up and I didn't really pay that much attention to political leaders. I certainly did to the substance of them. I believed in their integrity and their adulthood. And he did, he did come back to me about that and said, well, it, there was a level of, and I think I hear that, there's a level of substance to even a figure like Richard Nixon, you know, that no one was saying that he wasn't, you know, kind of a, a figure of importance, you know, whether we hate him or not. Mm -hmm. um, but... I ended up thinking that what was the key to my sense of heroes? And this is my question to lob back to you. And I think that what links them, and some of them are a few, there are a few political figures in there, but what links them, and, and it connects to something that you said in, in, in the last episode or the one before, about major figures understanding cultural mythology and all of my heroes are sort of culturally contemporarily relatively speaking not always but they had a mythological sense of stature and leadership and I think what the young woman I'm thinking about is missing entirely is not great political leadership or great corporate leadership or you know She's had some very fine adults in her life, and she really respects them. But what's missing is that bigger-than-life mythic presence of some of the people that are in my mind, heart, and spirit. So my question to you is, what do you think about this no-hero thing with your peers and younger? Do you have heroes, and I know you do, and how would you define that sense of, of heroicism that you see in them and your connection with them?
The first question is that I feel very disheartened by this idea. First of all, I would wonder how how true that statement is. The no heroes, you mean? The no heroes. Cor- correct. Yeah, yeah, yes. okay. I wonder if this person sat down. But whether it's true or not, uh, the fact that it was said at all betrays a, a sort of stance on the idea of heroes in general, the ideology that would suggest that you should in fact have heroes at all. I think that my generation in particular has been really struggling for most of our adult lives with this, with the difference between communal, um, progressive helping of others and the idea of heroes sort of gets chucked in the bin with this idea of, you know, worshiping the old white men of history. Um, history in general, as you know, has been under attack majorly in most colleges down into high school, even if some people had their way all the way to kindergartens. This idea of kind of dismantling people like the founding fathers or i don't know maybe civil war generals um with the idea of putting it in kids head that the world is built from or by evil people who exploited others in order to make the world the way it is the unfortunate part of that is that whether or not you think that that's true it doesn't really have a bearing on having personal heroes, people who you look up to in a mythological sense, or people who are able to live their lives the way that that they saw fit and really overcame some obstacles. So I do have uh, many heroes, everybody from musicians. As a matter of fact, I've been listening a lot to the Berlin Trilogy uh, the past week. I've been listening to David Bowie's Heroes. Mm -hmm. So that's an interesting synchronicity there. But David Bowie would definitely be one. Someone like Michael Jordan would be one. I would say uh, Marcus Aurelius, Giordano Bruno, um, many iconoclasts, rebels, uh, people who really put their lives on the line for things that they believed whether intellectually or otherwise, and paid the ultimate price. You know, we just had Easter. Jesus Christ would be a hero of mine. Bravo, um, bravo. I celebrate that day. I, yeah, and and so I think, uh, so I do have, have heroes, and I think that, I think that it's what unites most of the heroes in, in my mind, as I said before, uh, was the ability to perform under massive amounts of pressure. When you look at somebody like Michael Jordan, who had and has just a a shark-like, predatory, cutthroat desire to win at all costs, and he certainly overcame many hurdles to do that. He had an intense work ethic. People like Bruno, who have uh, 
knowledge and principles and beliefs and who suffer and die for those things. I mean, they drove a they drove an iron spike up under his chin through his jaw to split his tongue in half before burning him at the stake. In the field of and flowers the, in Rome for heresy. The idea right, the idea that he, you know, he had the audacity to suggest that the stars were, you know, the centers of galaxies that each had their own planets, um, which if you look at the history, it's either that or he was an occultist who who knew things that he wasn't supposed to know or or he was just kind of an asshole who people didn't like and they wanted to see him get up out of there and they used all that as a pretense for burning him at the stake but regardless of that people who are able to to stand up to these types of mobs are heroes for me i'm stoics definitely seneca and marcus aurelius um but you'll even see people like marcus aurelius and seneca torn down because marcus aurelius was an emperor and seneca was extremely wealthy for he's one of the wealthiest men alive at the time that he was alive um and not entirely successful you know i mean some of his uh some of the people he mentored grew up to not be the best people but the 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 principles and ideas that these people had specifically about uh, not shutting down inquiry and not not wondering whether or not they were right but being able to kind of step back and uh, have a bit of bravado in the face of life's challenges I think is is very very important and it's a shame to to think that those kind of things can be the baby thrown out with the bathwater of you know attempting to uh, retell history from the point of you know conquerors and 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 blood although all those elements are true as as well but not the entire picture okay look i think you've said some really important things there and i do uh, i have to jump in here i think that sure. the word bravado and and your tonal qualities there are, are really important and i mean tonal in the sense of, of spirit and courage if anyone ever gets the chance to go to rome to what is still called the field of flowers where bruno was burned alive you will feel some sort of presence that is bigger than you are and I think this is the problem. I think tonally there is a problem with people, younger people today, acknowledging that it isn't just the older generation, their parents who have the credit cards. They're, they're often still living at home. So, of course, they're not going to feel very good about older people, you know, because they've got this sense of presence of like, well, our music was better and, and you're not really paying for that pizza because you aren't paying rent. You know, there's a problem with that sort of situation. It's a lack of humility of being able to embrace something larger than oneself. But here's another thing. I think that, um, you know, you, you, you triggered a thought about, uh, well, the whole uh, multicultural sort of racial sort of side of this and a kind of activist, the new activist sort of thing of, look, let's, uh, let's debunk 
all of the past. We want all of the, the great innovations. We certainly want anesthesia if we have surgery. And we don't want to know who the people were involved in bringing that to us, or really anything, you know, circulation of the blood, electromagnetism, you know, and we certainly don't want to give up our car keys, do we? Uh, even though we're going to go electric. Well, who actually? Oh, oh, really? Okay, you're going to go electric. Who do you think actually has anything to do with that? Well, no, maybe Michael Faraday and some people like that. Oh, dear. It just gets more and more complicated. But for years, when I was actively, regularly teaching at university level, I would really, really throw everything I had at Black History Month. You know, and I found a lot of resistance to that, whether I was talking about John Coltrane and Miles Davis. I mean, I worked actually for Miles Davis. I could really share some personal things there. But what about Garrett Morgan? You know, and everyone goes, who's Garrett Morgan? You know, and it, everything stops. You know, we know who Fannie Lou Hamer is. We know we, we, we know some things and it's good. We're, we're building we're, we're, we're breaking through a wall of ignorance but it's important to, to remember that ignorance is based not on lack of education or lack of intellect but ignore you know we're ignoring a lot of great figures of the past both realistic totally down-to-earth people near in time to us and also these larger-than-life figures that are very hard to explain. There is, I, I met Miles Davis, and there's no explanation for him. Yeah, he, he was real. Mm -hmm. He went to the toilet. He had a lot of drug problems, and he was, you know, he was as real as anything gets. But on the other hand, there's something about him that's not. And we, we've talked in the past episodes about some people who really have a kind of mythic stature to them. And I think what's happened with the screen generations and social media is this notion that we need someone to aspire to that is still near enough to us that we can tear them down you know mm -hmm. we can tear them mm -hmm. down can you it's holding the heroes hostage essentially i mean like our heroes need to be able to to still be executed yeah, via, from our little bedrooms, our little teenage girl bedrooms, you know? That's what we want. I, uh, the book I refer to, you know, The, the, the Dumbest Generation, I, I think that's a very uh, harrowing look at the, who holds the power today. And I think that uh, there's a generation of parents that is completely responsible for this of letting some little monsters loose with social media. And if they end up having, you know, weight problems and depression and anxiety, do you know that one of the major uh, medical associations of, of respect has today issued uh, a, perhaps a warning that all young people under the age of 14 should be continuously examined for anxiety and depression. You know, you think, mm -hmm. really? Mm -hmm. Well, why don't they, why not, how about getting them to go out and do some work? You know, how, ang how anxious and depressed can you be when you're breaking up boxes on the back of an Albertson's, you know, loading dock? You know? How many 14-year-olds could do a, could do six hours of, of actual physical labor, boy or girl, or the other options, you know? 
You know? No. It's just it's just plain nonsense and drivel. So of course they don't want mythic figures or to admire genius or to appreciate the great innovations and where they've come from. All they want is to be to get some likes on social media, to do as little work as possible, and to get credential to have a six-figure job that really does nothing and adds no value, but nevertheless could maybe give them some moral prestige standing. That's a very cynical view. <laughs> I accept that. I think that's a rather cynical view, Chris, someone would say. Yes, I, I did get a little bit cynical there. But I do think that that is something to be thought of here, that it, it's a den it, it figures into our denial of the library and our management of the supermarket variety issues, which was a very interesting episode, David and I did, I think a couple back, about dismissing bases of knowledge so that no one feels small or inadequate, as opposed to feeling excited about a whole world of possibilities. I mean, who, who are these people? That could be something that we'd want to right. find out. You know, well, I want to I want to investigate this idea of your cynicism about this, because I could hear somebody saying, well, we just know more now than we used to. And what these people actually have is a realistic view of history to which I would say, do you think that people didn't understand that history was complex before 2022 do you think that in the course of history we're the first people in history to realize that history can be a bit problematic no i think it's coming from something a little bit different i have a hard time believing that people who might have worshipped an emperor as a god might not have thought to themselves in private moments i wonder if all the human sacrifice is really necessary. I wonder, I wonder if this is a good thing mm. that we're doing. Shh, um, we don't want to let that sit. <laughs> don't do just, just, just keep that to yourself. But no, I don't think that this is unique to art. I think that this is what you said. I mean, it's a symptom of a of the people around me. Well, you know, you can look at it from just a straight corporate point of view. You know, what would be, why, why has religion been disappearing? Some facets of religion don't do themselves any favors. I saw a video recently on Twitter of a group of Christians uh, singing hymns on a plane to a completely trapped and captive audience. And it, they were rightly ridiculed for doing that. So some of these people aren't doing themselves any favors, right? But on the other hand, who makes the best consumers right people who have a constant lack and need and heroes and religion are the the figures the stories that used to fill this lack that corporations know needs to be filled instead with consumer goods so you have to find a way to break that down and turn 
your populace into something that's very malleable. It's the, the word that we used last time too. And I think that, you know, politicians look at it that way too. Look at these, when I see people who go straight from the COVID party line, wearing masks, social distancing, um, worship of scientists, even though the science is changing every day, as science rightly should, and they go right into the Ukraine stuff. These are people without any North Star for their belief system. No direction, nothing that keeps them solidly in place. And they become, in effect, a nice little mobile army for whatever current corporate uh, fire sale or, <laughs> or invasion is coming down the pipeline. It's a really great tool when you have a populace as big as ours is, which is unique in the history of the world. How do you control it? Well, you, you definitely can't have all of those people, you know, united under a true love, not just for, say, the idea of a Jesus Christ, but like the principles of a Jesus Christ, right? Of people actually following in the footsteps of their heroes who are often heroes again because they stood up to authority you can't have heroes who stand up to authority when you have eight billion people in the world how are you going to have authority at that point well that's an interesting idea you know going back to your, your just the the idea of these um this this recent news story of, of christian singing uh, hymns and, and, and new evangelical music on an airplane. You know, the only place I heard about that story was because uh, a certain Muslim uh, congressional representative from the state of Minnesota, which I think is one of the most embattled ideological places that I can imagine, complained about it and mentioned, you know, well, what would, what would happen if her family uh, were... Uh, to engage in uh, uh, some sort of prayer ceremony on it. Well, you know, all I can say is uh, I don't know whether she's ever traveled on any airplane. I assume that she has. She did go to the, the August School of the University of North Dakota and is a congressional figure of importance or, or at least someone, someone we should respect. But I think that anywhere you go... Uh, you see people of the Islamic faith being able to quite openly uh, pray in, in public. I, I've seen that about, I don't know, maybe 10,000 times in my life in many parts of the world. I, I don't understand what she was saying about that. I think she was just trying to score some sort of weird political points. But the ideology of, of religion is, is kind of, well, I think that's a bit more than we want to get to here. I think the question is, to what extent can people embrace figures that have a significance, depth, and possible even, you know, a real stature, an inexplicable stature that is bigger than themselves, uh, and enjoy that as opposed to being threatened by that. When I was 16, I got a chance to, I won this writing contest, and I was so excited, and the, I got a chance to meet Tennessee Williams, mm. you know, for an hour of private discussion. And, you know, okay, well, he was, he was you know, getting on. He, 
he still had a few more good years. He was still creating some very weird theater. He was really trying to, he was very experimental at the end. Um, but I had no problem just thinking this is one of those moments that I will remember the rest of my life. Because this person, he, he was not a big man at all. I was much bigger. I was much stronger, you know. And he was, you know, I could have, I could have thrown him through a wall. But it was magical, magical to meet him. Mm-hmm. And I would say the same of a meeting with Lauren Bacall. Lauren Bacall was, you know, I mean, she was Humphrey Bogart's wife. She had a couple of great acting roles. But she, you know, not one of the Hollywood legends of, of as, as a dramatic performer in the sense of like a Catherine Hepburn or whoever. But my God. To sit across the table from Lauren Bacall, if you didn't acknowledge there are natural aristocrats, as Herman Melville said, people who just have more pheromones, more magnetism, more charisma. We've talked about charisma in the past, you know, and I I, I think that, that there just has to be, I don't know, some humility in people and some enjoyment of of, be, of the world being possibly bigger. Why does the fact that the world is bigger than we are have to be intimidating, you know, alienating, and the source of anxiety and depression for young people? I just don't get that. I think to me that's like, let's go out and meet it, you know? Let's, I mean, the star of Sumatra was a, a freighter that I once was on, and I thought, you've got to be, this is my dream come true the star of Sumatra. I get to even walk up this greasy, fish-stinking, rusted plank with these weird people. And I thought, you betcha. I am so in with this, you know? Mm-hmm. I Yeah, I think that there's a lot there. I, I think that this idea of something bigger than you really stems from i mean if we just want to get down to brass tacks with it i think that it does you know it's that it's that thing that sometimes the most annoying people in the world are correct (laughs) have you ever heard a republican uh or you know a, a hyper conservative say like a jeff foxworthy type a comedian right and they're up on stage and they're talking about how everybody gets a trophy now and that's a problem. Man, I hate to say it, but they're right. Yeah. That's actually correct. Because you teach children, and I'm one of those children, by the way. I come from the world of, you know, everybody gets a trophy. I remember winning the spelling bee when I was in fourth grade and I beat a a sixth grader and I won this big red dictionary. And I remember when I when I won, the girl who I beat started to cry and the whole sort of crowd centered around her and started comforting her. And I was, you know, sort of left off to the side with my friend group, uh, with my dictionary, right? That I that I had won. <laughs> but if you think about David, I'm worried. I'm worried. Uh, you got me on tenor hooks here. You do, you do. 
<laughs> so no, I mean, just the the whole that's pretty much the whole story. But you know, this idea that oh, uh, you know, thank God, you know, I was you, you so worried about, like, you gave her the dictionary. Oh, oh no, no, oh, I didn't give her the fuck. I didn't oh. give her the dictionary. Oh, no, I'm I so relieved. I had a Hallmark Channel moment there. Oh, it's okay. Uh-huh. It's okay, people. My 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 blood pressure is getting back to it's okay. I just I just had I, I I was I was worried I just was worried we were losing David into into the cloud there oh, oh no okay oh, oh no no no, no. Oh. I, I, I kept the oh. dictionary no my point of that story was that you know that was that was a moment that I had had won and then you all of a sudden see that the person who lost became the center of attention which I mean I'm sorry but if you if you lose you just go and take your seat and and that's it. But I think it's really illustrative of where we're kind of at in in general. That story has always stuck with me, and I think it's why I'm so alert to uh, sort of victimhood narratives, because at the time I didn't really care. I, I was just happy that I won my dictionary. But something about that story, I think sometimes things stick with us because we're going to need them later. So even though something might not bother you then, it will come back up later. And I just think that that whole everybody gets a trophy society, it might be painful to admit it, but I think it was just, it was a real mistake because you have to earn those things. And once you have a mindset that you have to earn things, then all of a sudden, like you said, heroes become cool again. Being able to just be a part of things becomes cool again being able to get on a cool ship or be at a cool concert or speech uh, engage in large-scale collective action where you're just a face in a crowd right all of that stuff becomes cool again once you accept that you're not always the freaking center of attention you're not whether you're the winner or not you're just you're not the center of attention and of course this problem has just been exacerbated by you know cell phones and tiktok and everybody you know my 12 year old niece wants to be a youtuber like that's what her goal is i'm not surprised by that at all i'm not surprised by that at all but listen i i was so taken by this dictionary spelling bee thing and i really did have a moment of just checking my pulse you know just i was i was worried (laughs) it's the first time you've you've ever thrown me to the point where i I, I was thinking oh no oh no i can't lose david no we can't lose david we can't so i i want to throw this and this is another little uh it's an it's an imaginative challenge in brief it's it's a it's a quicker one than what you've been working on uh supposing you're a disney executive and you've got that scenario and you've got two different scripts in front of you one is the david character looks on this other competitor and says no look you, you do get the dictionary, okay? So that is one scenario, one possibility. The other one is the competitor, the girl, says, that's my dictionary. I, I really deserve that. And the David character just beats her living brains out with the dictionary. <laughs> uh, which do you think would poll better with a you know, market research audience today? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Which one? Well, the, the former, yeah, definitely the former. Okay, but really? So we, uh, you I, think? I think, I think the, I think the latter would be funnier. 
I think that if I was in charge and I didn't care about ever working again, then I would go with the latter. But I think that, uh, yeah, I, you know, it's just... But isn't that the I've question? That have, I, have, look, I, I'm going to propose that with no script whatsoever, no planning, we just arrived at this place completely organically, that we have found our way to a crucial moment in culture at this point. Because I would suggest... Mm -hmm. That, that, that either-or proposition, David, the character, gives the dictionary to the second-place finisher, or the, the second-place finisher attacks David and he defends his trophy. I think that is the heart of, of a lot of issues today. And I wonder if... if I, I think that, that the, the, the latter execution, if it were done with the right tone... I think would be very. I think people would would get with that. I think if it was really just mm -hmm. obviously brutal, uh, well, the more brutal it was, that might be slapstick comedy. So it might be seen as ironic and funny. And might whereas the former, I think, is potentially completely dismissed by feel good PC. Ugh that no one really believes in. And I don't think young people are that fooled by. I don't know who would be fooled by it. I reckon that's a good challenge. I'd like to put that out to listeners to see what they would, would do in that situation. This is the great spelling bee competition. There's a legitimate winner. There's a legitimate second place finisher, which should be considered honorable. But we've got two scenarios here, you know? And I, I think that is a very, without even, I mean, I never would have thought of this, you know, without you thinking, you know, coming up with it and telling the story. But I think that's a really good way to see some of the ideological, social <laughs> issues of our time, you know? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I could see that. I like it. I think that's good. Well, well I think that... On that note, we're ready to hear about some tattoos in Blakeville, Ohio. Yeah, I have I have something here. It's uh, it's it's more metaphorical. So I did not go the alien route. I didn't go the alien glyphs uh, route. I have some notes here about it potentially being a vaccine side effect. I decided not to go with that either. And then I have something here about corporate tattoos uh, with like Disney branding. I didn't go that route either. Um, in this scenario, these children wake up, ages four to nine, and they're covered in all of the bad tattoos that people have gotten. <laughs> Bart Simpson. Bart Simpson with big tits. Calvin from Calvin and Hobbes pissing on a Ford logo. No regrets with regrets spelled R-A-G-R-E-T-S. Harry Potter tattoos, spider webs, monster energy drink, Chinese characters that mean I'm retarded. <laughs> All sorts of fun <laughs> things like that. And what's going on in this story metaphorically? How would we flesh this out? Well, we have a town that has seen better days and has been abandoned. But abandoned at what cost? Who benefits from the abandonment of, of this town? The town has been used up in a sense. Somebody got something out of the town at some point. 
And I just really like the metaphorical idea, besides the, the humor of some of these, you know, obscene or funny tattoos showing up on kids, you know, the kind of real world idea that, you know, you have SoundCloud rappers who as soon as they turn 18, cover their faces in tattoos as a sort of humiliation ritual to gain attention. Um, this idea of children being fed to Moloch, right? Or of the elite drinking the blood of children. I like this idea that when the, the tattoos show up on these kids, there are several people ages 30 to 55 who wake up with no tattoos at all. And they have psychically, the same way that the town was used up and people were left to deal with it, they have disabused themselves of the, the mistakes of their past and passed them straight on to not even their children, but other people's children. So I feel like the story has a lot of metaphorical potential in that sense. And of course, we would do this artistically. We wouldn't be stating so bluntly what the story was, was actually about, but maybe through having three because i love the number three and i think all good stories have to you know the setup the turn and then the punchline i think that threes work really well in these stories maybe three different little anecdotes about somebody who no longer has a tattoo and then the child who wakes up with it i think the story would really effectively maybe maybe not a flash fiction piece maybe we're talking more like really short a short story here, maybe 2,500 words to 3,000. I think that you could really make a, a, a interesting um, statement about things with a, with a magical realist story such as that. Okay. Well, as usual, there's, uh, uh, and there's almost nothing usual about your responses, there's some really interesting things going on there. Uh, here's my breakdown of this, and I encourage people to think in these terms because I've been doing teaching based on listening for a long time, and I just heard that in real time, you know, for, without any script or, or any, you know, background information. What was the first thing that David did as a technique? Well, I will tell you in this case, and it's very important. It's very important we encourage this in all our communications and relationships However explicitly we define ourselves as teachers or not, we should shoulder some of that responsibility. If we look to all of our relationships as releasing possibilities in other people, being an accelerant, an agent of ignition, we need to look to this technique. The first thing that David did, and we need to support this rather than discourage it, because we actively discourage this, in almost every field of education formally, with one exception, possibly math, and this is also under threat, he showed us his work. He showed us some ideas that he looked at and then discarded. That is not only a beautiful human thing, it's a great rhetorical strategy. It's the way sales works. I mean, think of a really gun real estate sales person. They show you two houses and then they show you the third, you know, the third, the principle of threes. Why? Because it's more than two and less than four. 
you know, a worldwide magical idea. But encourage people to show their work, to show their background thinking. Don't get them, don't force everyone to, let's cut to the chase. You know, no, slow it down and listen to how people think, because that's what we're really talking about with communication and sharing and interrelationships with people. We want to know how they think. And the, what, what ideas someone smart discards can be very, very interesting. And they show us a lot about, in this case, the zeitgeist of today. What were the things that David discarded? Well, the first one was, well, alien glyphs. Okay, so we've discarded a whole mythology of, of literature. We've discard, you know, discarded the Midwich Cuckoos, which became the Village of the Damned and Alien Invasion, and a whole, whole wealth of literature. I'll leave it to you to remember what the second thing that he discarded was. But the important thing is encouraging people to show their work, to reveal their thinking, to take you backstage. There is nothing more uh, respectful than that. And there's nothing more fun than that when someone's got a good mind. The second thing I think is interesting, gets very David talks about motive. Well, he's published crime novels. He's a publisher of a crime imprint. And motive is one of the most important things. Who benefits? Why? Why? It's, you know, we, we don't really care when we watch mm -hmm. all these action-adventure things about the how. We go, well, that's a lot of colored lights and nonsense, and they're just going to, you know, who knows, you know? But we do care why. We do care why, you know? Why is what we can't get away from. So the motive thing is, is, is very, very interesting. The third element of what's going on there. And this really does define uh, some, this, this is kind of our latest theme of where uh, David and I join hands across the years. And it is, it is an aesthetic idea. It's, a, it's a, a cultural idea. And it may be completely disappearing that we're, we're, there is a mix here of popular culture backdropped and interlaced with mythological mythographic culture and that speaks to me very directly i i mean i am in that camp a hundred percent everything you know i started off writing was in that camp I'm, I'm all those are my values and i wonder if those values are disappearing but that was a beautiful simple performance of that and so there are three things that are going on there and i'll just put them into a larger context the very, very fundamental issue of people showing their work. How did they get to some particular point? Give people the chance to have that discussion. Give them the time. Give them the respect. A very personal, focused, professional issue of motive, which also speaks to much larger psychological directives, of course, but is particularly relevant to David's personal background. And then a larger cultural backdrop, figure and ground, the individual against culture. And the cultural idea here is pop cult, you know, just schmaltz up against grand mythology. That is, a, that is one of perhaps the simple definition of what postmodernism might mean in literature terms anyway. So there, there are some really interesting things going on there. But, but 
you know, think about that. Think about listening to how people phrase their things and give people these challenges. You know, you can't do it with everyone. Believe me, you can't. I get some terrible looks from people when I ask them really basic questions. But if you find someone like David who's willing to engage in things, embrace that because that is a laboratory of learning and possibility. Okay, so there's one little thing that's niggling at me out of what you just said. Tell me. And that is, what are the questions that you ask people that get you funny looks? I've got to know. Oh, I'm picturing Chris in a bar with some poor schmuck who doesn't know what's coming down the pipeline. They don't know that they're talking to a live wire powerhouse thinker. And then Chris just starts asking them questions and their world, their fucking, their world is just rocked. I've got to know. What are you asking them? Uh, well, first of all, it's getting you these looks. I, I never get those looks in bars, certainly not around here from bikers and people with beards and tats. They always are listening and engaging and performing stories. You know, I get those looks Fair from enough, academics yeah. and, and people a little okay. bit closer yeah. to me. And well, a simple question would be, uh, I might say something like, sometimes I look at something like a painting and my response is strong because I can't really articulate what it is I feel or why it means something to me. Have you ever felt something like that? <laughs> you know, it's a pretty open-ended question, right? You know, it's like, well, I mean, why is the girl pretty? Well, I don't know. It's like no. It, it, it's a question. Symmetry. Of, yeah. No, no. It's not. It's not symmetry. I've seen some asymmetrical hotties in my time. Sorry. Go but ahead. you know what I mean. It, it, it's very innocent, open-ended questions that I don't mean in any way to be confrontational. And I am. I'm off duty and not. I don't have it on any teaching hat. And you know, contrary to what people think, I, you know, I, I don't do that all the time. But I am curious about things. I'm naturally inherently curious. So I do do that. But I might ask someone, well, okay, let's think of, uh, well, certain kinds of, 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 of moods of music that were very popular in, say, AM Top 40 radio that I was growing up. And I might ask someone, do you, do you hear that mood in any contemporary music today? Do you think that, that there is uh, a vocabulary and a grammar for that and I just simply don't know the artist? Or do you think that that mood has just moved on or disappeared in popular culture. And I might list a few songs out and they may or may not know those. You know, that's an example. Um, what's another example of something that's really got me in strife that's not political? Um, well, here's an example. Um, does the moon... Rise in the east and set in the west all the time, everywhere in the world? I'm just asking. And people go, <laughs> whoa, 
you should hear some of the responses I've gotten to that. You know, mm-hmm, mm-hmm, you know, mm-hmm. or you know, it's, it's a good question. You know, it's like it, it's often very simple. I mean, I, I suppose I'm perverse, and underneath a lot of my questioning is is a great appreciation of people who who have invented the world that I very much appreciate. You know, things like electricity, electromagnetism, uh, the whole idea of flight. I mean, I challenge anyone. And I've known some of the best helicopter pilots in the world, and they can't explain how helicopters fly. You ask someone on the street, how does it work? I mean, do you even know what, what, what controls you've got? Really? I mean, what do the foot pedals do? Well, no one knows. I was thinking about this today. I was on Twitter... And I was clicking the like button on something. And I know that there are computer programmers and I know that it all goes down to binary code and that binary code is built and, you know, there's layers and layers and layers of this. But somewhere there are people entering in uh, code somewhere to make the shape of the like button. (laughs) The heart shape, you know? (laughs) And I just thought about that, and I was—I I just thought to myself, how? How does this program that's beamed into my phone, live, how does it make all these shapes out of zeros and ones, essentially, right? Out of simple, <coughs> simple commands. Isn't that far out, though? It I is mean, far. Just thinking about like these these screens that we look at every day. I mean, you know. I've got my email open here. How? How does this happen? Well, I guess that's why they have millions of dollars and I don't, because I don't, <laughs> I don't understand the process. It would probably. It, what do you think? Maybe a week long course, and we'd have it down. But uh, yeah, you know. Now. Yeah. I think so. Well, look, that's a good segue into two things. Like, okay, there's a quick tool. Because the tool this time is really uh, very uh, very basic, but it, I encourage everyone to follow up completely. And I'm going to keep plugging my textbook because I'm really, really proud of it. And I have to say that the greatest support is coming from our No Country Book Club people. Some great reviews that really mean a lot to me and that are extremely articulate. And mm-hmm. I think they define what our, our project of No Country is about because, you know... Highfalutin formal education can be a good thing, but that does not guarantee that you're smart. There are people who can be very smart, very curious, and extremely gifted with language that are, you know, doing things that are outside academia and corporate involvement and are also living in some parts of the country that our West Coast and East Coast elites look down on. So David and I are very grateful for those people. Uh, Neither of us live on a coast. We're, we're you know, we're also scrappy kind of uh, working class people who have fought for the education that we have, but mainly because we just have a joy in learning and curiosity. And that's what this fan base is. And we're very grateful that for that. But the tool here is in the mathematical senses, make all geometry as physical as possible 
That's what geometry is. It is a conceptualizing of the physical world. What a genius idea. My, my point, in, crucial point, in the final section about enhancing imagination is blindfold work. Very basic idea. I'm not saying there's anything all that original, but I learned that when I spent a summer, a crucial summer, my first uh, summer in college, I worked at the Lighthouse School of the Blind, their summer camp in Napa, California, and I ran the sports and drama programs and helped with photography for the blind. Children, teenagers, young adults, and seniors over the course of the summer. What a kind of mystical sort of progression that is, isn't it? Huh. Dreamlike, you know? It's very, very interesting. Yeah. But blindfold work is absolutely enriching, and no one has, I mean, the people we're speaking to don't have enough space that you're going to get lost in if you blindfold yourself. And if you have a partner at home, spouse, boyfriend, girlfriend, whatever, you can get some help. You can arrange furniture so you don't kill yourself. You can also go outside in the world. And my uh, a friend of mine is coming up and we're going to do a hike uh, in, in, in rough, desolate sort of terrain. And I'm going to be completely blindfolded. And then I'm going to lead him to sort of flip it around. Blindfold work is absolutely a terrific way to spatialize time and to temporalize space. But when you do it with someone else as well, when you go outside, you can do it alone inside. And I recommend that. Terrence McKenna talks about that experience. But when you go outside with someone and think about this if you're in business with someone or you're making love with someone or you're, you know, whatever. It's a trust exercise that is brilliant and it will open channels of your thinking that will just amaze you. But as with many things, it's all or nothing. You've got to commit to it. You've got to commit to it. And that segues into the tip for the week the tip which is much simpler but it's sight based or or maybe sight based the tip of the week is about dog poop imagine going out as i do every morning walking and there are people around me who are walking and I listen because I've got ears like a jackrabbit and I'm curious and I just can't help myself knowing, you know, or wanting to know what people are talking about. I've noticed that when other people come upon some dog poop that hasn't been picked up, there are two things that happen. <laughs> One, and this is the more sincere, genuine, true-to-life response, their physical body tries to avoid stepping in it. I admire that. I admire that alertness. That's a Solomon Islander sense. That's good. But the other thing I don't admire, they invariably say, why do people pick up after their dogs? I understand that. I perfectly understand that. I have that thought too. I'm not above that thinking at all. But here's the point. They have missed the aesthetics of the poop. They have missed how the poop relates to other poop. For instance, right next to it, a whole bunch of rabbit pellets or bird poop or, oh my God, 
there's there's a rabbit pelvis there that got ripped open by a coyote. They've missed everything. They're not seeing anything. All they're seeing is the social human thing of, well, someone didn't do the right thing. Someone in our community didn't bag that poop. They've lost the reality. And I ask people to think of what you lose when you see only the human social level of life. That's my tip. That's great. Yeah, you know, you lose a lot of that in, in many ways. It's the first thing that comes to mind with me is um, <clears throat> people who get road rage or, you know, get sort of upset. I was driving along the road today and a semi-truck was coming up. I, I had the yield, <clears throat> and so I did. But there were several cars ahead of me that didn't, and they were driving on the shoulder of the road because this truck just refused to go over for whatever reason. I'm not in the mind of truckers. I don't know why that kind of thing would happen, but it was very dangerous and um, kind of frightening on their behalf. But, you know, people who are get really in their feelings about being cut off or not making a green light, you're missing so much by doing that. Namely, that you're in a car, right? Fiberglass and steel and gasoline, dude. Like going going down the road at 40 miles an hour? What? Like how many things are you missing by being caught up in the... But you're not, you're not supposed to do that. You're supposed to signal. Dude, we're... Part of us, anyway. It's just pure animal, right? You put monkeys in moving machinery and and what else do you expect but the other thing is what you're saying which is why why bother wasting time getting frustrated that these certain social codes have been violated when there's an entire awesome world around you i really look forward i took gus to the park the other day and there was dog poop around but i set him down in the dirt and I was showing him how to dig in the dirt with a stick. And I just think we're going to have a really cool and fun time learning how to, you know, the different types of grass and trees and how to how to dig and look for things. Let's find some worms, you know? Yeah, and keep I it. I, I, I couldn't have cared less that there was dog shit in the park, you know? Well, and maybe you get to the you just point. Don't, just don't step in it. Maybe you'd get to the point where thinking, well, what are the ideological boundaries I'm I'm drawing between dog shit and coyote shit? You know, mm-hmm. uh, am I really? That's an interesting question. Yeah, am I that is. am I alert enough to know the difference? And you see, then mm-hmm. you start just start looking at questions open endedly, without you know, as children do. You know, children start that they just. They don't have these ideological frameworks. We pose, we impose that upon them, and they get narrower and narrower and narrower until they're like, you know, eight years old or twelve years old. You know, then they're basically ruined for life. But if you just let people ask open-ended questions and be curious and go, well, you know, geez, there's actually a lot of poop around here. What's going on? You know, what does that say? You know, you could do a kind of mosaic. 
you know, you could go, well, maybe there's, maybe, maybe these creatures are different sizes and eating different things. And maybe that says a lot about the biological sort of nature of life. And maybe that reflects on the uh, 19th century idea of mechanism versus organic behavior. And, you know, we could build a whole framework from that. In fact, you know, there are about three or four disciplines, you know, that have grown out of that. And, 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 I, and I think one of them is called biology, you know. Mm-hmm. You know, so yeah, mm-hmm. keep it open ended, keep fun. You know, just and and answer the questions that, that you know the young people have, and then also say, well, I I really don't know. <laughs> you know, I don't know if that was a hawk or an eagle. But I, I want to find out too. You know, there is that. Right. There is that. You know. Oh, okay. Mm-hmm. We well, uh, ready for the dream? You have. Yeah, did you did you dream this week? Because I did. Dreams are very intense this week. Oh, really? Well, maybe you should hit us up with yours because I got a monster one. Oh, you know, it wasn't. There was a lot of visitations from people in the past. Rios had this too, actually. Friends that we haven't talked to in quite some time. Uh, Some dead people showed up. Uh, Lots of visits to the big. Um, it's a big bookstore, which I'm sure, you know, you can have an interpretive field day with that. But one of the major areas in my brain is a big bookstore on the beach. And it looks like, uh, kind of like the white house. It's this big kind of sprawling <laughs> white building. And in its center, there's a spiral staircase and you can go up and down it. And I have the intuition that there are different stores at different levels, but no matter where I go, it's just books 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 and then oddly enough even though it's on the beach if you leave the building the other way there's a massive river that takes me to st louis so who knows what that's all about but it was just it was very vivid kind of uh your your typical serialized soap opera dream drama of you know um pretty much every dream cliche you could probably think of but but still, like, you know, one of those waking up and being like, oh, I, I forgot that this was what life actually is as far as we know. Um, but go ahead with yours. Yeah, I'm interested to hear. Well, it's interesting about, uh, I mean, I love the idea of St. Louis because, uh, you know, you're, you're south and west of St. Louis. And uh, that's interesting. I mean, you're well down river and... Uh, Across the whole Cherokee Nation, I might add. Um, so there's a lot of weird stuff going on. Well, all right, listen, I, I think I've come out of the closet pretty fully since I've moved over the mountains to Boulder City that I, I think the people who don't believe in UFOs need to reevaluate. And I, I'm not proposing that I have any great answers at all in real life. But I, I do know that, that I had a dream in which... Mm-hmm. Uh, they come out of uh, the north here. They come on. A, they're flying on a, on a very clear bearing. Uh, it's about two hundred thirty-five. Well, it's not about. It's it's. I've I've, met, I've got the tools. It's two hundred thirty-five degrees southwest. They're flying, and they don't appear to land. They're not banking west to land at any of the airports in the Vegas Valley, whether the commercial airports or. The military bases, there are several, including Nellis Air Force Base. No, and they're certainly not overflying to land at the airport that I go skydiving from. They don't appear to land at all. 
they don't appear to land at all. They appear to disappear mm. over Lake Mead. And in the dream, uh, I am out on the water. Uh, there's an expression that my neighbors have. Uh, we're always trying to meet people with boats, especially with summer coming on. We don't own boats because we're not you know, fancy schmancy people, but we're trying to meet people with boats. Well, in the dream, I'd met someone with a boat and we uh, watched as uh yeah we scored and uh, we were on a pontoon boat on lake mead when one of these crafts landed and settled in and did not appear to be all that eager to you know uh, avoid us to the point where i i just i jumped off and i wanted to touch it i wanted to know what it and you know what it felt like it was it was not metal although it looked like metal it felt like some kind of sponge, some kind of sponge. And it is moving with a jellyfish-like sort of propulsion. Jellyfish in the larger sense that William Reich, William Reich sort of talks about. But I, I grabbed onto this thing and I thought, you know, okay. And, it's, and it went down. It went down. And I thought, oh dear. I, I know I might be good to 30 feet, but you know, what's going on? And fortunately it didn't go down any, you know, it, it, it was, it was cool. And it opened into this enormous tank that had been built by humans for in the Hoover Dam era and had been submerged all this time, but they had colonized it and taken it over. So we're talking about uh, a ship with a peculiar configuration, neither completely sort of saucer-like uh, nor arrowhead-like. Somewhere a compromise between those, in the same way that I think some of our stealth aircrafts are compromises, but made of a kind of organic sort of sponge-like composite metal thing. But about, oh, maybe 4,000 square feet. So the size of a good, you know, suburban house, but not huge. And I went into this old abandoned tank thing and there they are. There they are. And they're not fully human, but they look nothing, nothing like aliens that we see in all the, you know, caricature nonsense at all. They look, they have a dignity and they have a, a non-alien quality to them. And what they are is archaeologists hmm. and they're here to salvage some of the culture that is dying on this planet because it has larger significance than we realize and they collect souls like microfilm or microfiche in a library sense and that people you know jim morris and albert ayler martin luther you know on and on they're still alive in a sense they're still contact, their energy is still harvestable and studyable. And they also have a whole bunch of, of people who look to me like off the posters at rest stops of, have you seen this girl? You know, missing persons and fugitives and, you know, people who just died by the side of the road. And it's this incredible mosaic collective of humanity that is valuable to them for reasons I have no understanding about.
And the last thing I remember before waking up, one of them, and they, they are sort of gendered, but, but, but flexible, but they're certainly not aliens with big heads and, you know, you know, they have, they have dress, they have character, they have individuality. They look like archaeologists from another galaxy. And I was told to touch one of these mosaic frames and I didn't recognize the face I touched. Mixed race sort of person. I didn't know if it was someone famous. I just didn't know. This goes back to something larger than life. But I felt this exhilarating sense of energy and this tremendous rush of cinnamon in my mouth. And I mm. woke up on that vibe. 